Hey, welcome to the Doc Porter Podcast. I'm Dave McVeigh, co-writer, along with my buddy Jim Ballone. Uh, thanks for choosing us. Every week we'll be dropping a new chapter, maybe even two, of our 2021 novel, The Doc Porter, which is set on Mackinac Island, Michigan, read by me. When we published the book in 2021, we really had no idea it would take off. It ended up winning a Michigan Notable Book Award and was an Amazon bestseller for like at least a few minutes. Uh, it seemed to have struck a chord, and it's been pretty amazing to see the whole thing take off. So why are we giving the book away on a podcast when we can also sell it on Audible, which we are selling it on Audible? That's actually a pretty good question. Um, in fact, now that you mention it, let's just forget this whole thing. I'm kidding. We're giving it away because we are building up to something really special. Um, coming in August 2023, we're releasing the prequel to The Doc Porter called Somewhere in Crime. In Somewhere in Crime, we go back even further to the summer of 1979. Mackinac Island was the backdrop for a Hollywood movie called Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. The hero of the Doc Porter, Jack, was 11 that summer, and he was the paperboy. He ends up trying to solve a cold case murder while bumbling in and out of the Somewhere in Time production. So anyway, enjoy the Doc Porter and get ready for Somewhere in Crime, which is coming in August of 2023 to Amazon and the Mackinac Island Bookstore, and hopefully other outlets, TBD. Thanks again for listening. Chapter 6, Leaping, July 18th, 1989. I found myself aware of the weight of bags and the burn of the summer sun on my arms and neck as I rode. Weird shit. I suppose you would call it a growing sense of self-awareness, but I wasn't into all that psychology crap back then. I just felt different. Everyone had a mission. Spangler was investigating the man in black, Gordon's grim, mysterious friend, sensing a story. I suppose that's what aspiring journalists do. Trust their instincts and let the cards fall where they may. Other than the occasional obituary or ice cream social announcement, Spangler never published much, and the Island Gazette wasn't looking for hard-hitting reporting. But hell, why not try? Foster consumed his extra moments on the dock, translating the letters he regularly received from his senorita in Veracruz. He'd read them aloud to us between boats in a mangled Spanish that was, incrementally and day by day, improving. Smitty and Fly kept up a steady banter regarding the feasibility of riding 21 bags, presenting new, creative, albeit ill-advised, approaches daily. AJ was harboring his starlet at the Hammond Cottage, we'd all find out later, and despite his canary-eating grin, we had no idea what they were up to. As for me, I was obsessed with the moronic wager I'd made with Gordon, which added a touch of melancholy to the antics on the dock. Was this the last summer? And through it all, Bull continued to learn how to ride loads. I returned to the dock, gliding in after a run to the Wibho. Bull was straddling his ride with a massive load of luggage, made more impressive when set in stark contrast to his spindly physique. The others huddled around a raucous, oversized Jenga duel, and nobody noticed that Bull was about to die young. His face brightened when he saw me approach. His whole body was quivering like a piano wire, and his face was bathed in a light sweat. Look, Blackjack, Jack! Foster glanced up and chuckled. Look, 
Blackjack Jack, he said, mocking the kid gleefully. Looks like your baby's taking his first steps. And his last, Smitty chimed in. I parked my ride and jogged over to him. Did you load this up yourself? AJ help, he replied. I'm sure he did. And then I bet he split. It's fine. He, he had a run. Bull couldn't have known that AJ was infamous for stacking up a rookie's basket with a wildly unbalanced load. Just to watch said rookie dump. For him, it was a basic rite of passage. You're not ready for something this heavy. I inspected and readjusted the suitcases. I admired his guts, if not his intelligence. There was no way he could ride it. It was a great photo opportunity, but it wasn't going anywhere. I pulled out the Instamatic and snapped a few shots. Bull noticed, pleased, and posed like a fisherman with a huge marlin. Taking my picture? Must not be that unsafe, then, he beamed. This is for the lawsuit, I shot back, sliding the camera in my pocket. First of all, it's not technically blackjack. You need 21 FAA classified pieces of luggage. These sleeping bags don't count. I coached them as I pulled off bags. It's also top-heavy. Did you even check the weight distribution on the wings? And these bungee cords are crap. Fly will set you up. He invented his own. I made a few more quick adjustments. Bull leaned in close. Jack, Fly's bungees are expensive. I think they're... He lowered his voice. Kind of a jip. Fly was in earshot and looked over, instantly irate. His bungees were state-of-the-art and everyone knew it. Jip, he said with a menacing scowl, approaching Bull. Jip? Fly held up one of his cords like it was a sleeping but dangerous python. This shit is nylon out of sheath, a cobalt-coated stainless steel hook designed in a lab at MIT. MIT, Bull! You could leap off the Mackinac Bridge with this stretchy little bitch and bounce back intact. Fly, done, turned away, calling back over his shoulder. Doc Porter game's just like life, Bulldog. You get what you pay for, and your price just went way up. As if Fly scripted the scene, the cheap bargain bin bungee cord hook that secured Bull's load to the stem of his handlebar was slowly starting to bend outward. I saw it. We got trouble, Bull. We need to unload this shit. Take that cord off and let me... Ooh, too late. The cord snapped and slingshotted across the top of the luggage. The hook smacked Bull square on the nose, and the load instantly self-destructed, sideways and outward. Bull instinctively grabbed his bloody nose instead of securing the bike. Oh, shit! Smash! It all went down. A convention of seagulls scattered in terror, their wings stirring up manure dust and popcorn remnants. Tourists glanced over with alarm. It was the wrong moment to dump, especially with sharks like Gordon circling, smelling blood, searching for an excuse to devour the Doc Porter system in one greedy gulp. Like a cleanup crew at the Indy 500, the guys rushed into action to scoop Bull, his luggage, and his bloody snout away from prying eyes. I grabbed the basket of his prone bike and yanked him up by the hand while I scanned the ticket booth to see if we were causing a scene. There, wearing a baseball cap, but impossible not to notice, was the Irish woman. I immediately let go of Bull. Hey! he shouted as he hit the deck for a second time that minute with a flushy thud. Ah, uh, sorry there, Bull, I said without meaning it. Boys, um, help him out. I need to, um... I wandered away without finishing the sentence and approached Aaron, who had a ferry ticket in her hand. She saw me approaching and smiled. It was open, but a touch vulnerable. I hadn't seen this smile on her before. You're leaving? I asked. 
I noticed her luggage and a large, scuffed cello case. I am, she replied. I felt an undeniable wave of disappointment. We have 25 minutes until the next boat pulls in. Explain. She laughed as if I'd said something stupid. All I need is 25 seconds. My boyfriend, who dragged me to this rock, morphed into an asshole right before my eyes. It was a magical transformation, I have to say. I've got no money saved and I'm stuck in the back arse of nowhere. So it's back to Dublin for me. Guess I'm fucked. With her accent, it came out as fucked and sounded less like a dirty word and more like poetry. I fumbled for a witty response. How is it that Irish people make that word sound so cool? We fucking practice. I looked over to her cello case. Something inside of me was bubbling up and it felt a lot like don't leave. Instead, it came out a lot like a stammering, you should, I mean, you, there's, there's some, maybe you could, she looked at me sideways, waiting for a complete sentence. What if I could guarantee you $100 cash in 15 minutes? Ha, she said. Well, I'd ask you if it were legal. Play for us. One last time. I pointed to her cello. Oh no, my buskin days are over, Boyle. A few of the guys sauntered over. Smitty piped in. We love the cello. Spangler filled in the awkward pause. A member of the string family, if I'm not mistaken. Guys, this is... I couldn't remember her name. My face felt flush. Aaron, she said, and I'm 75% sure I told you that last time. I cleared my throat. <clears> this <throat> is Aaron. Aaron, these are the dock porters. She's going to play for us. She looked at me sharply. I didn't agree to that. She inspected the sheepish gathering and glanced at her watch, then at her cello case, calculating her next move. Guarantee me a hundred dollars in tips, she said, indicating the cello case with a pointed finger, or that beast of an instrument never comes out of its shell. If the tourist tips here don't cover the mark, you lads make up the difference. Got it? Deal, Foster piped in, strolling over for the show, intrigued by this very sexy stranger with the brash negotiation skills. Aaron looked around the dock, evaluating the scene. A handful of passengers waited for the boat, absently feasting on maple-flavored fudge. She looked towards the sun, squinted her Irish eyes, and turned towards us. Somebody get me a hat. She pulled the bill of her hat down low. I'll be damned if I'm laying this one in the shit. T'was a gift. The gang erupted in a small but mighty cheer. Smitty sheepishly wandered up to her, peeking at me over his shoulder as if he were doing something wrong. Um, Aaron? Smitty asked. Yes? Do you know Freebird? Fine plan! Freebird it is! Smitty turned towards me, beaming like a proud little eager who had just scored the winning run. He gave me a sneaky double thumbs up and silently worded, She's hot! Soon we were all experiencing the most heart-wrenching version of Freebird any of us had ever heard or ever would. This was the exact moment that I fell for her. Her acerbic exterior vanished, replaced by the sights and sounds of a lonely girl far from home. Melancholy reverberated with each draw of the bow. For that five minutes or so, life became a sad, beautiful montage, and I felt an aching deja vu for moments I'm pretty sure never happened. I was confident there would be no issue with her hitting the $100 mark. A crowd of tourists watched, transfixed as she played. I looked over at Smitty. I swore I saw a tiny tear tracking down his face, glistening in the sun. 
I pointed my finger directly at his cheek, almost touching it. Wait, is that what I think it is? Oh, hell no, he said, pulling away from me. I got a gnat in my eye. He quickly wiped it away, sniffed, and crossed his arms. I took in the scene. Tourists, dock workers, the grizzled teamsters, even the snorting draft horses savored the moment. I stood with Aaron as she counted out a healthy stack of cash. Looks like maybe I've been hanging out with the wrong crowd, she said, straightening out the bills. Nah, we are the wrong crowd, I said, and I'm pretty sure I would have noticed you. Cap Riley leaned on the railing of the upper deck. All aboard, he called down. Despite the fat wad of cash she clutched in her right hand, she looked a little lost. She looked at me directly, her deep blue eyes sincere and unblinking. Thanks, Jack. You're a good guy. Enjoy the rest of your summer. She moved towards the ramp. Try not to dump anymore. She walked up the ramp to the boat. I stepped away, allowing the other passengers to pile on. Foster saddled up next to me and stood uncomfortably close, looking straight ahead at the ferry as he spoke. I agree with you, he said. I looked at him. His eyes remained forward. Nice, but I didn't say anything. Yeah, a woman like that could screw up your master plan. I don't have a master plan, Foster. You know that. But he wasn't done. She's a three-course meal. You're a fast food guy. We stood in awkward silence, but I knew he was just warming up. She's like one of those comets that shoots by every 30 years or so. Better just to stand back and watch him pass. And you? You're a tip man. I mean, why deal with all that kind of heavy lifting? Again, the long silence. I squinted to catch a glimpse of her through the ferry's porthole, tuning out his babble. She's like a finely tuned sort of stop, I said. By now, the other guys had joined the vigil, staring glumly at the ferry like a losing baseball team watching the final pitches of the big game. Foster spoke again, this time quietly. That's good, because I was running out of, you know, he trailed off. Metaphors, Spengler asked. Exactly, Foster said. That's the word. Metaphors. Then it was Smitty's turn. She was really special. Really special? What did these idiots want from me? Some Irish chick plays Freebird and I'm supposed to go all gooey? Restructure my life? Even so, they were getting through. I spent four seasons working the docks and I met a lot of summer girls. Some loved Depeche Mode, some loved heavy metal, some were awesome, some were annoying. But they all had something magical in common. They took a risk. It was always easy for me. Wildcliff was in my family. I had a porch and a bed, and when my mom was alive, scrambled eggs and toast. Hell, I was practically conceived on Mackinac Island. But summer girls owned an adventurous streak that far outweighed mine. They took the leap and left the safety of their downstate homes. They strapped on the black polyester blend waitress garb and got busy having the summer of their young lives. I loved summer girls. But Erin? She was more. I turned away and walked towards my bike. The ferry was revving its stinky diesel, preparing to back away from the dock. Franklin slid the ramp up with a grind. I looked towards where Aaron had just been playing her cello. A lone purple scarf lay on the ground. It billowed slightly, fluttering towards the edge of the dock. I trotted over and snatched it up moments before the wind carried it into the lake. I inspected it closely. It was a traditional design with a hint of bohemia, a floral pattern, but funky. 
this was Aaron's scarf. And she would probably want it back. Maybe it was a gift, a family heirloom. It looked expensive. I swallowed hard and looked towards the departing ferry. Without much thought, I took off running towards the boat as it instigated a lazy pivot out of the harbor. I mean, the woman left her scarf. The guys turned and watched as I sprinted past. Wait, I have a scarf! Franklin was peering out the porthole, baffled, his head twisted sideways. A scarf? What scarf? I waved it over my head. This one! It belongs to Aaron! The cello player! Stop the boat! The jello prayer? He called back. What's a jello prayer? It was far too late for detailed explanations. I hit the dock running. If I could get my right foot square on the two-foot rim around the hull, I could pull myself up on the deck and return the precious heirloom. I remember glancing towards the upper deck. She leaned on the railing and watched me, but I didn't have time to interpret her expression. I took a breath and leaped, clutching the purple scarf and channeling, to the best of my abilities, Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics. The guys told me later that I was 10 to 12 feet short. To describe it as not even close would be far too generous. The lake was frigid. I splashed down, nuts first, and plunged four feet under the water. The mysterious gurgle of lake water instantly muffled the shocked laughter of the boys. I broke the surface, gasping, the frigid shock causing me to cough and hitch reflexively like a panicked old horse. It was not a healthy sound. I looked up towards the ferry, and there she was. Her expression didn't render appreciation, just deep concern. The kind of concern that causes one to call 911. Holy hell! What are you doing? She yelled down. I have your scarf! I held up the dripping purple rag in my right hand, paddling to stay afloat with my left. She squinted at me, the sun's reflection on the water causing chaos with her line of sight. She raised her hand to block it. I gasped. Since you're leaving for good, I thought, you know, you should have it. Thanks, Jack, she called down. But it's not my scarf. The guys were gathered at the edge of the dock, erupting in hysterics. Smitty collapsed holding his stomach and letting out a piercing guffaw. The others were supporting each other like soldiers after a battle, gasping with laughter. Cap Riley cut the engine and emerged from the pilot house. He scrambled to the rear of the vessel and saw me floating. These props will tenderize you in no time flat. Get away from the damn vessel. Sorry, Cap, I was... I have a scarf. A scarf? Cap Riley wasn't even going to waste a moment of his day trying to decipher what that meant. I got a schedule to keep. From the dock, I heard a booming voice. Stop the boat! There, dry as a bone and looking like a hero on the cover of a shitty romance novel, was Gordon. His blonde hair was windblown, and he was dressed in a sporty blue windbreaker and khaki shorts, looking like he just returned from the America's Cup. He was holding a bouquet of red roses. Aaron, come back! We have to talk! I followed his gaze towards Aaron. Her face was red with anger. I can only remember thinking one thing. What the ever-loving fuck? I told you, she yelled down. I'm leaving. Baby, we need to talk. I bobbed like a drowning rat in the space between the dock and the ferry. Baby? Were you going to just leave? Gordon called up. That is the plan, she yelled back. Let me explain. I got you your job back. Aww. That's sweet, she said in a mocking tone. 
She took a deep breath and bellowed, Since you're the reason I lost it, you fascist pig! Gordon yelled up again, this time to Cap Riley. Captain, sir, I need you to bring the fairy back. He turned towards Aaron and opened his arms in supplication. Aaron, he hollered up, let's get dinner at the Grand and we can work this all out. Aaron looked away from him, but it was all becoming a bit of a scene. She was clearly mortified to be the center of so much childish drama. The good news was, the utter failure of my idiotic leap was no longer the lead story. Fine, she yelled. The only reason I'm coming back is that I have no other choice. I'm broke. Well, not completely broke, I thought, bobbing like a spectator in the cheap seats at a water polo match. She did have the cello cash. Thanks to me. Cap Riley jammed the ferry into reverse. Just come back. It was all a huge misunderstanding. I'm so sorry, Gordon said. If he was lying, it was an impressive performance. Resigned, I turned away and dog paddled from the lover's spat, slowed by the wet, heavy burden of my oversized shorts. My tip roll and wallet were drenched. My imitation Ray-Bans were at the bottom of Lake Huron, with seaweed-covered hotel keys, bicycle parts, and various souvenir tchotchkes accidentally dropped in the lake over the last century or so. And she was with Gordon. I looked back as the straights two eased to the ramp. Franklin quickly dropped the gangplank and helped Aaron, her cello, and her luggage from the boat. Resigned, I scrambled up the wooden pilings, still holding on to that stupid, worthless purple scarf. Smitty and AJ helped me out of the lake while the other guys stifled hysterics. You missed the boat, Smitty said as he pulled me up by my arm. So much for not diving into a relationship, tossed out AJ as he grabbed a handful of my soaked golf shirt. Another shriek of laughter. Foster joined in. There's other fish in the sea, Jack. In fact, there's one right there by your left foot. The dam broke. God almighty, that was fantastic. You're hooked. Guilty as charged. It was endless, the abuse. It went on and on as I pulled myself out of the frigid water and planted myself at the edge of the dock, shivering. I watched glumly as Gordon pleaded with Aaron in the distance. AJ looked over at them. You know, Jack, said AJ, you're entitled to 10% of the cash your friend Lucky Charms made playing the cello. You were, in effect, acting as her agent. And, I asked, they're having dinner at the Grand tonight. Go collect. Lucky Charms? asked Smitty. AJ nodded. The perfect nickname for her. Smitty nodded. I get it. Like the cereal. Plus, she's magically delicious. I examined the soaked purple scarf that likely belonged to a retiree from Southgate, Michigan named Thelma. AJ was right. I needed to collect. Smitty! Do you own a jacket and tie? No, but I know somebody who does. Get it. Tonight, we're going to the Grand. 